Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8. I'll be reading all of Proverbs 8. Just before I hear, or just before I read God's Word, let us go humbly before our God in prayer. O God, You are all-wise, and any wisdom that we might have is dependent entirely on Your giving of it, Your light, Your truth. We pray that You would show us Your truth, that You would give us eyes to see, and that Christ would shine brightly in this text and through the preached Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 8, hear now the Word of God. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gate in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands, and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign, and rulers declare what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man." And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways, hear instruction, and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
Well, if you were with us last year, then you know that each year in December, we focus our attention on Advent. The word Advent comes from two Latin words for you Latin um, enjoyers, if you will. Latin ad and then vent or venire, which means to come to. So in Advent, we are focusing on the coming of the Son of God in the flesh to the world. We rejoice. We anticipate his second coming because of what he had done. He had first come to the world in the flesh. Now, the Old Testament in the Hebrew arrangement is classified by three main sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And this is not the same arrangement in the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's important because that is the uh, translation that has shaped how our English Bibles are arranged. But the Hebrew arrangement is law, prophets, and writings. The law is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis down to Deuteronomy. The prophets consist of most of those books that we would easily think of, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Twelve, which is short for the Minor Prophets, but others we may not have guessed, like Joshua or Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And interestingly, it doesn't include books like Ruth, Daniel, or Lamentations. The writings, a third main section, the writings include those three books and all the rest, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, and First and Second Chronicles. Don't worry, you're not being quizzed on this. Though it would be good to know. But the point here is Christ has told us that all of Scripture speaks about Him. And so we do well to look for Him in all of Scripture. And last year we did just that in the section of the law, in the Pentateuch. I took one sermon from, uh, I took one text from Genesis, one Exodus, one Leviticus, one Numbers, and one Deuteronomy. And we saw how Christ is in the Pentateuch. Though, of course, there are so many other passages in the Pentateuch where we would have seen Jesus, but time was limited. And this year we will operate under the same principle, but consider the section of the writings. Naturally, since there are more than five books in the writings, we need to be selective here. And so I've chosen from the Proverbs, Song of Songs, Nehemiah, and Job. was going to do one in Ezra, but as you heard in the pastoral prayer, I'll be gone this week for most of it. And so uh, Chaplain uh, Reverend Godwin will, um, will preach for us uh, this coming Sunday. And he'll do one from the prophets, Isaiah 61. Looking forward to that. We begin, then, with the book of Proverbs, and more specifically, chapter 8, the chapter on wisdom, which I just read. Well, the world's folly is a perennial problem. As long as you are part of the world, you will be foolish. It's a perennial problem. It's, it's every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year, every single generation. If it's part of the world, it is full of folly. It is not full of wisdom. And so this is why we always need the wisdom of God, the eternal wisdom of God. As we'll soon realize, this wisdom is not some impersonal body of knowledge. It is a body of eternal knowledge because of the eternally begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let us then consider wisdom's call, value, fruits, eternality, and blessedness. 
And again, by that I mean, let us consider the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The main point this morning is this. The blessed life of salvation is graciously gained by hearing and receiving the eternally begotten, enfleshed word of wisdom. So in the first nine verses here, we see the clarion call of wisdom. We see that this is a call for life. Unlike the captivating call of the sirens, here is a call that leads to life. You remember that Odysseus was warned about the sirens, the beautiful women who sang with such captivating sweetness that all their hearers failed to resist it and so died. But Odysseus was clever and victorious when he had his sailors tie him to the mast and then plug their ears with beeswax to resist the strong call of their deathbound cries. But here is no call to be resisted. Here is a call to be wholeheartedly welcome, that all who hear have life. Wisdom here calls to men. Wisdom calls to the children of men. She cries out everywhere for all to hear. It's a call for life. And in verse 8, we also see this is a, a call for righteousness. Wisdom says that her words are righteous. They're not lawless, they're not unrighteous, they are full, they're just dripping with the honey of righteousness, and it is sweet. And if we hear this call, we will have the straight and narrow before us. If we hear this call, we will go from simple to prudent. If we hear this call, we will move from a position of ignorance to being biblically learned. If we hear this call, we will go from unrighteous to righteous. If we hear this call, we will go from the dishonorable to the noble. If we hear this call, we will have both life and righteousness. If the book of Proverbs is anything, it is applicational. The first point of application here is the call for wisdom is a gracious call for life and righteousness. And you see that this call from wisdom is not for the sake of wisdom. It's for your sake. It's not for wisdom's sake. Wisdom cries out to be welcomed because wisdom loves to give of herself to others. She's not seeking to grow in wisdom herself, but that others would know her intimately, that others would get to know her as closely as possible and so be wise. She has everything to give. She's not in the place of, of gaining. She's in the place of giving. She's giving life. She's giving righteousness. There's not a shred of folly in wisdom's central nervous system. She is all wise all the time. And so when wisdom cries out, we are blessed, whose ears are opened to hear her sounds, her cries. In truth, this is the call of the gospel to all, isn't it? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the wise says, there is a God. He is my maker. He is my sustainer. He is my redeemer. He is my savior. It is Christ and only Christ who can speak the words of a noble life. For he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. If you are to have Wisdom, if you are to have life, if you are to have righteousness, there is only one person to whom you can go. It is to Christ. 
It is Christ and only Christ whose words abound with life and righteousness. It is Christ and only Christ who cries out, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you life. This is the call of grace. For if we are to be wise, we must know Christ's grace of crucifixion for you and me. There's the call. But we must value this heavenly wisdom above all things. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. So you see the contrast here that's set up between our desires and heavenly wisdom. Here it is clear that whatever the value of earthly treasures, the wisdom of God is priced higher. It is true that money cannot buy happiness, but as they say, money can buy things and and things can make you happy. Silver is pricey. Gold is even pricier. And if we're honest with ourselves, with one another, most of us want more of it. Most of us don't say, yeah, I've had enough silver. I've got enough gold. I have enough money in the bank account. We don't say that. We say we need more. It would be useful to have more. We, we love the security that we think it brings. We love the pleasures that money comes with. We love to be able to bless other people, don't we, when we have more of it. Silver and gold are good. But as Peter and John said to the lame beggar in the book of Acts, silver and gold have I not, but such as I have give I thee. That gave him the vision of the gospel and the power of Christ resurrected. What did it profit the dragon Smaug to be covered in an ocean of gold? What could he do with it other than sit in it and revel in it? He couldn't spend it as if he needed to. Can you imagine a dragon going to a marketplace trying to spend all that gold that he was hiding himself under? What does it profit us to be covered with earthly riches but not clothed by heavenly wisdom? For that heavenly wisdom not to dwell in us. And because wisdom is above all things that we could ever seek, wisdom is to be sought with all that we have, with all that we are. I recently watched a a trending video, which some of you might might have seen. There was a group of six men and women who all took an IQ test. And before they did, everyone said what he or she did, how old they were, and other relevant factors. There was, for instance, a male, a 21-year-old high school graduate who is now in the Marine Corps. Next to him was a female, a 30-year-old PhD in cancer biology. Can you believe that? PhD in cancer biology at the age of 30? That's crazy. Works for a biotech company. Every one of these six was asked individually how he or she thought he ranked with the others. And she thought that she ranked above the other five. So she gave herself first place. And she ranked this young man, this 21-year-old high school graduate, last. After all, he only has a high school diploma. And she, a PhD in cancer biology. Well, the results came in. And to her surprise, she, this man was ranked number three. And she was ranked last. Oh, funny. She was deluded into thinking 
that just because she has a PhD in cancer biology, she is smarter and on the whole a better person than all the others with apparently, apparently less exciting and less prestigious jobs. Too often, dear saints, we put all of our eggs in our own baskets of supposed self-worth, in our own possessions, in our own military rank of service, our own job of service, our own terms of service, our own service in church, our own academic degrees, or in other people. We put it all in what we've done, in who we are, by what we've accomplished, in who we are, by who we're related to. But all of these like a common penny to the inestimable riches of the wisdom Christ himself. We expend most or all of our efforts at gaining earthly treasures, of earning someone's approval, of climbing up the corporate ladder, or of making rank and keeping it. And we should have a godly ambition to use all of our gifts, all of our resources, all the opportunities given us by God to glorify God, to maximize life for the glorification of God, for ourselves and our family and for our church, our society, but never to the point of casting aside the real pearl of great price, the true wisdom of God, for what will never last, what will never truly gladden our hearts. A heart full of folly is not a truly glad heart, but a heart full of the wisdom, which is Christ, is joyful. It cannot, it cannot but be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord, yes, because the Lord has delighted in me. Verse 31, rejoicing in this inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. What did we do to cause heavenly wisdom to delight in us? Not a thing. In fact, we gave wisdom all reasons not to delight in us, but still he delighted and so indwelt us. You say, okay, I'll bite. What is in it for me if I, if I hear this wisdom and I seek this wisdom with all, above all the other treasures? Very quickly here, we see wisdom's fruits are righteousness, reigning, and riches. From these verses, we see that wisdom gives us righteousness, gives us ruling with Christ, gives us riches. In verse 18, with wisdom comes righteousness. Wisdom and righteousness go hand in hand. You cannot rule with righteousness if your heart is full of folly. You cannot be wise in matters of life and be unrighteous in your dealings with others. And in verse 15, we see that by wisdom, kings rule. By wisdom, rulers declare what is just. Now, those of us who are not in power lament all the folly that seems to fill the minds and mouths of those who are in charge of our beloved nation. Were we in charge, we would surely rule with wisdom. I would hope so. And so we pray for wisdom. We pray that the magistrate would have wisdom. We pray that the local, state, and national governments would lead with true wisdom, with wisdom from above, which, of course, would require the conversion of hearts. For they cannot rule truly with wisdom unless Christ reign in their hearts. And if wisdom guides the, the construction of kingdoms, the government of kingdoms, Surely, we need this wisdom as well. We need God's wisdom to reign in our respective areas of responsibility. We need wisdom in our 
in our own lives. We need wisdom in our homes. We need wisdom in this church. We need wisdom in our society. We must have this wisdom. Because the folly, the, the foolish one, leads his own life to destruction. And we want life, we want righteousness, and so we must be ruled by wisdom. And in verse 18, we read that riches and honor are with wisdom, enduring wealth even. This reminds me of the words of the psalmist in 19, Psalm 19, verse 10. The law of the Lord is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. This doesn't mean that God does not give us gold. Yes, even much fine gold. He does. And some of us have more of it than others. And we're thankful for the, the silver and the gold that we have. We're thankful for the bank account that has money in the bank account. And we must always be thankful for all the earthly blessings from our God. Yes. And amen. Because every good and perfect gift comes from above. But the glitters of this gold are like dark clouds and darkness compared to the radiant sun rays of glory of our God, who is majestic in holiness on his throne of grace and glory. And this king is one who loves to give us his kingdom to the praise of his glorious name. And the beauty of the gospel is what Christ says is, you seek me. You seek my Father, you seek my kingdom, you seek his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You need not worry about what clothes to put on. You need not worry what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, how you're going to go about your day. The Lord will keep you. The Lord will sustain you. The one who made you will sustain you and will even cause you to flourish in body and spirit. Just seek him his kingdom, his righteousness first. You don't just get spiritual blessings which are lasting, which, which are enduring, which are beautiful. But you also receive temporary, physical, tangible blessings according to the Spirit's own portioning, according to his own will. So those who seek this eternal wisdom, will receive eternal profit. Now, some people are rather strange. I know this, being a strange one. And they love to do social experiments with people. I like to do that too, but I wouldn't do this when I'm about to tell you. One group called Discover Connection, I guess they're pretty popular, got a lot of views on the YouTubes. But this group, Discover Connection, follows a pair of guys in rich neighborhoods, and they're on a mission. These two men are on a mission. And the mission is, at least in this episode that I watched, the mission was to cook a dinner for the rich homeowner. They're just walking around, okay? So for two days straight, it took them two days to find someone willing to do this. For two days straight, they're knocking on doors, asking if they could come into their house later that evening and cook them dinner. You can imagine the different responses that people, received, that people gave. One was of fear. One said, I have guns at the ready. I have guard dogs. Get off my property right now. Another was that of skepticism. Really? You, a complete stranger, want to come into my house and make me dinner? That doesn't make any sense. Get out of here. Some were delighted, but they said, no thanks. They liked the idea, just not for themselves, for someone else. They wished the men good luck. One guy, however, seeing them on the ring camera from 
uh, a previous, uh, from a homeowner that the guys had, had gone to, but who uh, rejected them. He sees this, and he's asking around, are these guys legitimate? What's going on with them? I don't know. They're weirdos, but they, say, they seem pretty harmless. And this one guy texts the pair of these men, wanting to take them up on the offer, but this time with a twist. He would make dinner for them. So, yeah, you guys can come. Well, I'll make it for you. And so more than that, he takes them on the boat. Takes them on a boat he has. Takes them on a boat ride in what looked like Venice, Italy, but I believe it was California, so um, almost the same. <laughs> they spent the day getting to know each other, playing board games, talking, just enjoying one another, having new friends. They were given more than what they offered to do, and they had pleasant memories for the rest of their lives. How much more, beloved, is gifted to all of us when we see God's heavenly wisdom, when we seek it? We come and we find that we are the ones for whom the heavenly host has prepared a table. With wisdom, we get wisdom, which is an infinite treasure in itself. But we also receive righteousness, reigning with Christ, and riches that fade not like the passing flowers. Well, who alone can offer us these eternal profits, these eternal rewards? Only one can do that, God himself. God, who is begotten, as we see in verses 22 through 26. And I trust that you know that this whole time I've been talking about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Well, where is the Son of God in Proverbs 8? Well, he is all over the place, but especially verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. This word possessed can mean fathered or begot. But notice it's not created. Then this is where Arius got it wrong. This is where Arius had to pay the price of a punch in the schnoz by good old St. Nicholas. If you guys know that story. To be begotten means to have a father. It means to be the son in a father-son relation. And we were given a hint here of the eternal father-son relation, that the son is at his father's side and has been at his side eternally. Because this begottenness does not mean that the son was made or created. Verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. That is to say, from eternity past, the Son has always been with the Father. The Son has always been at the Father's side, and He was at the Father's side at the creation of the world. Indeed, the Son was there eternally, daily, the delight of the Father, the two eternally rejoicing and delighting in one another, along with the Holy Spirit. And he gave up that divine prerogative of glory for a time to dwell with foolish people like you and me. Well, the heart of the Son of God, who not only delighted in the Father, but delighted in sinful man who would be redeemed man, came in the form of a baby not getting rid of his divinity, you can't stop being God, but taking on humanity to serve us salvation. 
It's a beautiful expression, the purpose of his incarnation. And because the Son of God is the wisdom before all in eternity past, we confess him as eternally begotten before all men. For us time-bound creatures, for that's what all creatures are, begotten means creation. There was a time when our child was not. There was a time when, when you were not. And then by ordinary generation, the child came into being. The child became. This is, this is just biblical creationism 101. There was a time when you were not. Of course, our LDS friends would say that we're wrong about that. They say that there are eternal spirits just waiting for a home, waiting for a physical body to indwell. But that's not the case. Even our spirits, God tells us, are created. We are not eternal. The angels are not eternal. Only one God is eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For all of us, for everyone else, we are limited by space and time. And so to be begotten, as far as creaturehood is concerned, is to indicate that there was a time when we were not, and now we are. But to take our limitations and our finitude and apply them upward and say, now that applies to the Son, would be a grave mistake. Yes, to be begotten for us means to be created, but that is not what it means for Christ to be begotten. There was never a time when the Son was not. It's the, the, the Arian phrase, the phrase from Arius who denied the, the eternality of God, who denied the, the, uh, the deity of the Son of God, said there was a time when the Son was not. And so he came into being. And we flat out deny that. There was never a time when the Son was not. Or to put that positively, there has always been the Son of God. He has always eternally been God. And so the Son of God. He is eternally begotten. And as such, is the only begotten of the Father. This is what we confess in our ancient creeds. Consider the, the line in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Or consider the line in the Nicene Creed, I believe in the only begotten Son of God, begotten the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Look at you guys knowing your Nicene Creed. Or consider the Athanasian Creed, the Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Son was neither made nor created, he was begotten from the Father alone. He was neither made nor created, but he was begotten. Or consider the Chalcedonian definition in 451. We believe in Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. We're thankful for these historic creeds that have been the affirmation of saints from every generation since they were created. But it isn't just that we say these creeds because this is what our ancient tradition says. If these creeds had no biblical basis for saying so, we shouldn't confess them. But we confess this because even though this is mysterious, it is what the Bible teaches. That's what Proverbs 8 teaches, verse 22. But also in the New Testament, we have further revelation about this matter. John 1, 1 through 3. You, you know how the Gospel of John begins so beautifully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So who's the word? 
We know later on in that gospel, later on in that chapter, that the Word became flesh. The Word is the Son of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. But it says here the Word was with God. That is to say, the Son was with the Father, eternally enjoying one another. And the Word was God. That is to say, the Son of God, the Word, Jesus Christ, has always been divine. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which is to say, he is in the class of creator, not created. Everything that is created was created through him. Through the the one who has always been at the Father's side. The one who is God himself. Or consider Jesus' own words in John 17, verse 5, in his high priestly prayer. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, that glory that he set aside by putting on frail humanity. He says, Father, it's, it's about time that I am crucified. And that I am raised from the dead, and then I will come back to you. I will ascend into your presence. Glorify me with that glory that we had, that I had with you from eternity past. Or consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1 24 that Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This message, which is folly to the world, to those who are perishing, is wisdom. Because through this wise crucifixion, we have life. We have righteousness. We have reigning with Christ. We have eternal blessedness. We therefore joyfully confess that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and only begotten for us and for our salvation. I must apologize. I I haven't quoted Herman Bavink in a while, so here you have a quote from him. He says, Rejection of the eternal generation of the Son involves not only a failure to do justice to the deity of the Son, but also to that of the Father. What does that mean? It means if you reject that the Son has always eternally been begotten of the Father, then you also say something about the Father. You say that there hasn't always been a Father. You say that the father-son relation hasn't always been. In order to be a son, you must have a father. And if you're a father, you have a son. To deny one is to deny the other. And that is a bit extreme, even for a man like Arius or his offspring like the Jehovah's Witnesses. And we who make this crucial confession that the son is eternally begotten of the father and only begotten for us, we who make this confession are blessed. Look at verse 34. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. And so with this verse, we are, we are back to the start. We're back to where the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 8 began. Wisdom's cry for us to hear. The question put before you then is, will you be blessed by wisdom's ways? If you want to be blessed by the ways of wisdom, by Christ himself, then you must seek wisdom daily, nightly, in all of your situations. And you will find yourself thoroughly blessed everywhere you go, wherever you are, whenever you are, because the Son will be with you. Charles Simeon says, wisdom is never found by chance. You don't stumble upon wisdom. 
You stumble because of folly. You stumble because you are not wise. By folly, we fall, and by wisdom, we walk. Are you watching daily at the gates of God's word for wisdom to speak to you? Are you beside wisdom's doors, getting as close as possible to hear what Scripture has to say? Indeed, do you even recognize that Jesus himself calls himself the door? He is the way to the Father. He is the way to wisdom. He is wisdom itself. Will you seek to be wise for more than a day? You must not just actively seek, but actively listen then hear wisdom's instruction and so be wise. We're told in verse 34, do not neglect it. Do not trade this wisdom for your own wisdom. Newsflash, it is not wise if it is yours. Yes, it can be a gift from God to you, and so it is wise. But if it's yours, not dependent upon God's wisdom, it is not wise. It is folly. However attractive it looks, however pleasing it sounds to the ears. If it isn't coming from above, it is not worth anything. It's not truly wise. So don't trade this beautiful wisdom for your own. Don't replace it with the world's folly, with the world's messages. Wake up every day and go to it. That is to say, go to him in his word. Pray. Read. Seek his counsel. Pray. Read. Seek his counsel, pray, read, seek his counsel day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and you will be increasingly wise unto salvation. Why Christ came to make you wise unto salvation, to cause you to worship the Father. Verse 32, and now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. The wise are not hearers only, deceiving themselves. The wise, as James tells us, are those who are doers of the word. Do you want to be wise? I hope that would be the desire of all of us, that we want to be truly wise. But we're told to obey. You've heard the son's words, and now follow him. It's foolish to hear the word of wisdom and to reject it but it is wisdom to hear wisdom and to obey wisdom. Follow his words to make you wise unto salvation for all of life and godliness. But look at the last two verses here. This active life. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Do you see the promise here? That when we seek him, he will be found. If we do not seek him truly with faith, then we will reap eternal ruin. But if we seek him with the gift of faith that we have been granted, we will reap eternal favor. He tells us to seek him. But of course you know that you will not seek him unless he first has sought you. And that's what he did in the incarnation. He saw a world Yes, of thorns and thistles, but a world devoid of wisdom, full of folly. And he says, I'm going to save them. I will seek them first because they, will, because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And they want nothing but enmity. They want nothing but folly. Oh, they think it is wisdom, but you see how destructive it is. 
I will go. I will indwell them with me by my spirit. The eternally begotten, now enfleshed word of wisdom, calls upon all of us to ask, to seek, and to knock. This is why the eternally begotten became the only begotten, the Christ child. He came to incarnate wisdom in a world that is wrapped in folly. He came to bless us with eternal life, true and lasting riches, heavenly favor by the Father, lasting, enduring wisdom. The incarnate wisdom pronounces his wise blessings upon all who seek him. Consider the Beatitudes. Are you poor in spirit? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. It is a gift from our Father in heaven. Do you mourn of your sin? You shall be forever comforted. Are you meek? Oh, be assured, dear saint, the all-wise king has given you the worldwide earth. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Then you shall surely be satisfied. Are you merciful? Thank God for this grace, and you shall receive more and more mercy. Are you pure in heart? You are only pure in heart because God has purified your heart by the blood of his Son. And you shall see God. Are you a peacemaker? Well, God has first made peace with you through his Son, our peace. And you shall be called sons of God. Are you persecuted for righteousness' sake? Well, dear ones, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Praise be to God that we have been granted all this because we have the wisdom that is Christ. This is why the eternally begotten has come, born to live unto unto righteousness, born to die for our lawlessness, born to rise for our justification, born to give us second birth. The begotten by the Father has come to bring us to his Father. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we do thank you for this word of wisdom. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he who is the eternally begotten and only begotten of the Father has come to make us the adopted sons and daughters of you, our great and generous and gracious God. Transform us from one degree of glory, from one expression of wisdom to another, as we lean upon the wisdom which is Christ. In his name we pray, amen.